When I left the practice last night, it was warm, it was sunny, it was the perfect summer's day. There was the sound of joy and laughter on the streets as people filled the pubs and restaurants with some sorely needed social time and some sorely needed business. There was a sense of delightful normality in a way that we haven't felt for months and months. And yet, as I look down at my phone, I see a text message from my doctor's surgery earlier in the day. It says, cases of coronavirus in Oxfordshire is on the rise. It is up to each of us to stop the virus spreading. We must act now to protect ourselves and others. So am I meant to eat out to help out? Or am I meant to stay in and save lives? It's Friday, the 31st of July, and this is the Hot Topics podcast from MB Medical. Welcome back to the Hot Topics podcast, everyone. Thanks for joining us once again. My name is Neil Tucker, and this is the Summer Holidays. It's also the hottest day of the year by far, and I'm already sweating. It's only 9.30 and it's relatively cool in my house. I'm very glad that I'm not in work today because my room has a large window that faces the sun throughout the whole day and it ends up being absolutely baking. No aircon. All we've got is a pair of scissors so that I can turn my scrubs into a pair of chop-offs. Sure, when I first did it, everyone else in my practice thought I was absolutely mad. They said, this is not the fashion that's required for medical staff these days. And I'll admit, having to alcohol gel your lower legs every time after seeing a patient is rather inconvenient. But I only have two pairs of scrubs and it's hot as hell today. I'd get through both of those in less than an hour without suitable modification. But enough about the latest fashion craze in general practice. We're here to talk about the news and the latest research. Now, cards on the table. This is generally a very fallow period of the year for research. Not much gets published over the summer holidays. Everyone's usually got something better to do. This year it's the double whammy because of coronavirus. All the journals have been full of coronavirus research, but that's petered out as well because after the initial flurry, things have slowed down. So this is going to be a pretty short podcast. There's going to be a few bits of research we talk about, but there has been lots of interesting developments over the last few weeks that are worth just acknowledging before we hang up the towel for the rest of the summer. So firstly, are we seeing a second wave of coronavirus? Well, I don't think we can call it a second wave, but it is basically as we predicted. So the virus has not gone away. And as restrictions have been lifted, as we've all started socialising a bit more, moving about more, going to work more, and of course, going on holiday at the moment, unsurprisingly, we're seeing an uptick in the number of cases around the country. And as we speak, Many of you will be waking up to restrictions being placed upon you in certain areas of the country, particularly the Midlands at the moment. And I think most of us can understand the rationale for why the government and local authorities are suggesting these mini lockdowns. Because when we first locked down, we were in that period of exponential increase in coronavirus cases. And there's no doubt that that lockdown had a profound effect, stopping the virus in its tracks. Which brings me on to the first piece of research for the day, and that's from the BMJ. And this was published a couple of weeks ago. It was a um, a review of 149 countries and physical distancing inven- interventions and the incidence of coronavirus disease. 
Now, they were looking at the number of cases in a country rather than the number of deaths. And they've made an argument about why they wanted to use that measure as opposed to deaths, which have generally been considered a more reliable indicator. We all know that in the early days of our lockdowns, testing was so hopeless in the UK that using that as any kind of mark was entirely pointless. Nevertheless, they've pushed on it. And their conclusion in this study was that physical distancing measures, including closures of schools, workplaces, public transport, restrictions on mass gatherings and public events and restrictions on movement, did have an effect at reducing coronavirus spread. And they found an overall reduction in incidence of coronavirus of around 13%. And this is one of those times where you have to look at the research and you just have to take a step back and think, does this really seem realistic to me? And whilst I appreciate that our perspective is, um, for most of us listening to this podcast, purely from the UK, and this study was looking at another 148 countries around the world, that figure of 13% reduction just doesn't ring true. Because the reality is, we saw with our own eyes, When you lock down and you do it really, really stringently, rates of any infectious disease drop like a stone. There's been a lot of discussion locally, and partly this is my time of life, having young children, um, about the schools going back in September. And of course, the government has mandated that all schools should reopen now. And I think the kids do need to go to school. They do need to get an education. They do need to spend time with their peers and their friends. But the big question remains whether this is likely to be a driver for um, increased transmission. And this was a question they tried to address in um, JAMA this week. So in a paper entitled Association Between Statewide School Closure and COVID-19 Incidents and Mortality in the U.S., And America is fascinating because it's broken into so many different states. I mean, it's like having sort of 50 different countries in Europe where they're all doing their own social experiments. Many of us have gazed on in horror at the news reports around some of the approaches that certain areas have undertaken. But this is good news for researchers and it has allowed them to make these comparisons between different states. Their interpretation of the data suggests that there was an almost 40% reduction in the incidence of COVID-19 in states where they had had school closures once they'd adjusted for other confounding factors. So any other types of interventions that they'd also implemented to try and reduce transmission rates. On the face of it, that sounds like a pretty terrifying statistic, to be honest, and suggests that a huge proportion of transmission is as a result of children going to school and acting as a reservoir for disease. But the authors did acknowledge that what they hadn't looked at is they haven't looked at when schools are left open, but other measures are also implemented. And of course, come September, when all the children go back, the rest of us won't entirely return to normal. And I think that's going to have to be one of the biggest changes in mindset in the public. So let's be honest, we're all guilty of this. Our child clearly has some kind of a bug, but we're so desperate not to miss work because things are always so stretched that we dose them up and pack them off to school anyway, where they go and share it around and the cycle continues. Now, my children have not had a single infection in six months. This is absolutely unbelievable. And they've still been going into school and nursery throughout the whole pandemic. They've still been seeing their friends in the sort of middle to later stages of the pandemic. I think people have just been a bit more aware and more sensible. So if they or one of their family members have had what looks like an illness, 
They don't go to work. They don't send their kids into school. They do stay at home until things settle down. They do get a test now that tests are available. And all of this has been working. So when the kids go back to school in September, I hope that employers and businesses remember this change in mindset and this change of ethos. For years in every industry, but healthcare is the epitome of this, we have been relentlessly squeezed for financial efficiency. There is no spare capacity. There is no redundancy in the system. But now things are different and we need to appreciate that going into work is not always the right thing to do. And of course, we can embrace the newer technologies. Many of us would have the ability to work from home. Even in fact, you could do a lot of your general practice day remotely now. And whilst it's not my preferred way of doing things, and I do miss that face-to-face patient contact, this technology can be a useful tool and is a necessity at the moment. Oh, now in other news, we are going to be prescribing cycling to our patients. Hooray, I hear you cheer. I can't wait. It is true. I absolutely love cycling. I cycle to work. I cycle for fun. I dress up in Lycra. I guess now that I've turned 40, I probably meet the title of a mammal, middle-aged man in Lycra. Please do email or tweet or Facebook me to um, to, to let me know what you think middle age actually is these days. My wife reliably informs me it is not yet. Maybe middle age now starts at 50. I don't know. Answers on the back of a postcard, please. Anyway, of course, the government announced that we are going to be able to prescribe cycling to patients who may be overweight. So there's been a huge amount of discussion about obesity during this pandemic and how um, people who are overweight or obese have worse outcomes if they have coronavirus. And so now the government want to get really, really serious about the obesity crisis. Of course, they don't really seem to have actually thought about this in any shape or form. There's absolutely no details about how we might go about prescribing cycling to our our patients. I have this image that we'll have racks and racks of Boris bikes outside all of our practices now. And if a patient is lucky enough to actually come in and see one of us face to face and we think that they are a bit overweight, we, um, we just say to them, look, I have to have your car keys. I'm very sorry about this. This is a government mandate. You are cycling home. Uh, you can have your keys back once your HbA1c is less than 6.5. You've got to pick up your daughter from ballet in 20 minutes. No, no, I'm afraid you won't be able to do that. Although the bikes are pretty sturdy, you can probably give her a backy. No, no, it's no use in crying. I'd write to your MP instead. They are the ones that make all the decisions. So let's hope they give us some more details soon. I like the idea that perhaps my Monday morning session could actually be in Lycra cycling around town with some of my patients. Whether it will actually do anyone any good or not is going to be up for debate. And there certainly has been a lot of debate around this already on social media and the medical forums. Personally, I think it has potential to be helpful for people, but it's not right for everyone. So not everyone will want to cycle. And there's obvious issues around cycling infrastructure in the UK being very, very poor. That needs to be improved before we can say that this intervention is truly safe for for patients. And then it won't work as a mechanism of weight loss for quite a few people. So we're all different. We don't really understand this very well. We're not very good at sort of separating out different types of people that will respond to different types of this style of intervention. I have a friend who is pretty overweight, it has to be said. 
And he's gone through phases of doing exercise, particularly taking up cycling. And he does lose weight quite rapidly when he exercises. However, I've never lost weight when I exercise because when I exercise, it makes me hungry and then I eat and I will always ultimately compensate for the amount of calories I burn exercising by then eating eating more, even if that's over the course of two or three days following that exercise. So different people just seem to have different pathways by which their gut hormones work and drive that desire for food all that feeling of satiety. So the bottom line, just like everything in general practice, just like everything in medicine, just like everything with a body, it is complicated. One approach won't fit all. Now, one interesting bit of research that's come out around coronavirus in the last couple of weeks is the idea that your blood type has an effect on your susceptibility to SARS-CoV-2. So if you are lucky enough to be in blood group O, you have a lower chance of catching coronavirus. If you have blood group A, you have a relatively higher chance. This is thought to be because people who have blood type O already have protective antibodies derived from exposure to other pathogens. So those antibodies then interrupt the virus from latching on to the ACE2 receptor. Remember ACE2? Don't take your Ramapril. Do take your Ramapril. Those were the days, remember, early pandemic, when we all thought we had a handle on cell wall protein expression. Now, those antigens look suspiciously like antigens expressed on type A blood cells. So that's why if you are type A blood, you don't make them because you'd start attacking yourself. So this data comes from a preliminary report out of China, but it appears to be a bit more complex than just the type A, B, A, B or O blood, because an American study actually says it's also to do with your rhesus status. And they believe that it only seems to be advantageous to a person if they are rhesus positive. Now, on the positive side, this is just about susceptibility, not about the degree of severity of an infection that you're likely to experience. And of course, while this is interesting scientifically, unfortunately, you cannot choose your blood type. And finally, of course, this week we had some positive news about potential vaccines for coronavirus. There was a lot in the media about the one that's being produced by Oxford University and AstraZeneca. And in their combined phase one and two trials of just over a thousand patients, which is a pretty good number, um, they've demonstrated that their vaccine does produce an appropriate immune response. So this is pretty significant news. Um, That was never a given. And there are plenty of things that we've tried to develop vaccines against where we failed to develop any kind of immune response. But it doesn't necessarily translate into a real world effect. And so this is why then we need to go on and do phase three trials. Usually in the context of vaccinations, this would involve hundreds of thousands of people. And this leads to an interesting dilemma because these studies, um, when well conducted, they take time. And there are different schools of thought here. So from the pure evidence-based medicine perspective, the ideal would be that we do a randomised controlled trial involving hundreds of thousands of people quantify the benefits and the risks. And then you could take it a step further and then think about cost effectiveness of vaccinating the population as well. But I think this concept diverges a lot from a significant proportion of public opinion. Speaking to various friends over the last couple of weeks, so non-medic friends, 
A lot of them feel that the vaccine is already being produced by the drug companies. We don't definitely know whether it's effective or not. They feel it's likely to be quite safe. Why don't we just get on and start vaccinating as many people as will accept it? And maybe protection won't be 100%. I mean, that's extraordinarily unlikely anyway. Maybe it'll be 50%. Maybe it'll be 25%. Maybe it'll only be 10%. Well, maybe even that's good enough to say we should just crack on and do it. So it's not just the Oxford vaccine that has shown benefits in the last few weeks. There are four vaccinations which show promise. There's the Oxford one in the UK. There's one in China, one in America and one in Germany. All of them have provoked an immune response. None of them have yet to enter phase three trials. Reading a report in New Scientist this week, they finished with the comment from uh, a vaccination expert that if we are to wait for these phase three trials and formal publication of results, then we're going to be waiting another 18 months from now before we can start to use the first COVID vaccine. Right now, with local lockdowns around the country, with cases on the rise, once again, 18 months seems like a really long way off. While we're thinking about vaccines, of course, the government have also said that almost double the number of people who are normal, normally eligible for a flu vaccine will be getting a flu vaccine this year. Now, it has to be said, this is an eminently sensible idea. But of course, no one who's made this policy has ever been in a general practice and particularly not during the pandemic. Normally, we've got people lining the walls a bit like they're up against a firing squad and then bam, 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 in goes the vaccine, out you go through the door. But to do this, maintaining social distancing, donning and doffing of protective equipment, it's hard to see how this demand is going to be met. The only practical way to do it will mean many of us, particularly probably our nursing staff, it's fair to say, will end up having to pull extra shifts to cover this. And even then, that doesn't really address the issue about having so many people coming through the practice at a time when we're trying to avoid having so many people coming through the practice. But there's the option of thinking outside the box a little bit. So there's thousands and thousands of community pharmacies around the country. Many of these can help deliver NHS vaccinations. And of course, we could facilitate the increased vaccinations in school aged children. So ideally, this could be done within the schools. They're already in their bubbles. They don't need to worry about additional precautions, social distancing, donning and doffing in that kind of setting. In fact, it would be better for us to send out staff to the schools to help rather than having more people come in through practices. So we've got a bit of time over the summer. Let's put our heads together. So practices, CCGs, health boards, schools, public health and government. We've shown how flexible we can be over the last few months. Let's embrace that. Let's think big. Let's think new. Let's think of different ways that we can deliver patient care. Listen to us, allow us that flexibility, and don't just rely on central rules and diktats that don't work for us on a local level. So that's it. I'm signing off for the rest of the summer. We'll be back with a podcast in September. We'll have a whole new Hot Topics course ready by then, and I'm sure there'll be plenty to talk about. In the meantime, if you want to get in touch, please do. So you can email on hottopics at mbmedical.com. You can find us on Twitter, so at GP Hot Topics um, uh, and at Dr. Neil Tucker. And you can find us on Facebook as well. And if you missed my blog on feeling a bit burnt out last week, then I will give you the summary. Take a break. Have a holiday. You deserve it. Bye bye.